0: Welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. I'm Andy Crouch. This week I'm excited to welcome Paul Verdu of Tenth and Blake to the conversation. But before we get started, the Beer Edge Podcast is brought to you by Arrived. When you envision the ideal experience for your brewery guests, your focus is on superb service and delicious beer. Point of sale is just a transactional formality to their visit. What you need is a point of service. Arrived is the only mobile, flexible, customizable point-of-service system designed specifically for craft breweries. It adapts and grows with you on-premise and online. Your staff will love the simplicity. Your managers will love the world-class support team. Your guests will love the seamless ordering experience. And probably order more beer because of it. Save time, money, and headaches with Arrived. Succession is on the minds of a lot of people these days. And I'm not talking about the HBO show. As we're recording today's episode, word leaked out that the iconic Bell's Brewery had been sold to Lion. A lot of beer folks were up in arms and big mad on social media, but with far less ferocity than years in years and deals past. And that's probably because this isn't our first rodeo. While the sale of Goose Island more than a decade ago to Anheuser-Busch shocked many craft beer lovers out of their community-induced fever dream, we've now collectively been through dozens of similar sales. And with each one, our respective and often performative outrage responses have grown less intense, diminished to the point of a quick flash of surprise and maybe disappointment, followed quickly by a soft shrug of the shoulders and continuing on with your day. What the future holds for Bell's, we cannot know. I expect Two-Hearted will taste as great as ever, and the brewery will be secure to move forward, grow, and prosper. What we do know is that these deals for brands new and old will continue to take place, and on today's show, we have one of the most knowledgeable sources behind such deals. Paul Verdu is the vice president and head of Tenth Blake, which is the craft-focused arm of its parent company, Molson Coors. Under this umbrella, Coors, then later Miller Coors, and now Molson Coors, have each sought to launch, develop, and promote flavorful beers. Its portfolio has shifted over the years once including Blue Moon until it outgrew the group and moved on to the bigger leagues. It has also been an active buyer of craft brands. As it stands today, Tenth and Blake includes the Jacob Kuckel Brewing Company, St. Archer, Terrapin, Hop Valley, Revolver, AC Golden, as well as relative newcomers Atwater and True Colors. It also houses a host of imported brands, including the much-beloved Pilsner Urkel. We talk a lot about craft beer on this podcast, but we rarely delve into the world of big beer. Today, we're fortunate to speak with Paul Verdu, whose career in the beer business has taken him around the world and offered him a rare view of both the craft and big beer spheres. He's long worked in the CPG space, originally selling bug killers and air fresheners, before moving on to work for Miller and in the beer space. We go through his background and what got him into the beer industry. The pains of the failed launch of St. Archer's Gold, in the face of a pandemic, and Tenth and Blake's intriguing investment into a brewery that employs active gang members in an attempt to quell gang violence. We also talk about my favorite subject, Pilsner, discussing the future of Pilsner or Kell in the U.S., and why Barman Pils is low-key, secretly, one of the best bloggers in the States. Here's my conversation with Paul Verdu of Tenth and Blake. So, Paul, thank you for joining us, and I know you have a long and varied career in the beer industry, but how did you get your start?
1: Uh, it was 2005. Um, I was living in Milwaukee. Where I, I cut my teeth in marketing through CPG companies, and we were living in the Milwaukee area. Um, I was with SC Johnson uh, selling and marketing uh, bug killers and air fresheners when there was this little turnaround story happening in Milwaukee with uh, the acquisition of Miller by SAB Miller that kind of made news It sort of put Miller Brewing Company back on the map in terms of the psyche of, uh, of, the, of the area and I just it, it, it sounded like an exciting place to be and it was right around that time I got a call from a headhunter asking if uh, I'd be interested in pursuing an opportunity there and I said you know my mind was I get to do what I love to do which is innovation and creative uh, development and marketing and advertising and working with consumers and I you're saying I can do that in the beer business I'm in so I started at Miller brewing company uh, in 2005 Um, I ended up being there for two and a half years or so and then got another call Uh, I wasn't planning to, to to leave that company at the time but I got another call in 2007 about an opportunity at what was then crown imports now constellation to come in and be the vice president of all the brands, except for Corona family. So, uh, I jumped at that one just because I saw the writing on the wall and where that company was going. And so moved to Chicago, um, and led the Modelo portfolio, Pacifico, Negro Modelo, helped launch, um, Victoria into the States. And at the time actually oversaw Qingdao and St. Pauli Girl, which were two brands that we, we had in the portfolio. Um, That was an amazing experience to help transform sort of their, um, and I worked very closely with Jim Sabia and the team there to help transform the the organization over time, um, bringing in consumer insights function and new agencies and sort of synthesizing and honing in on the brands. It was really a great experience. Um, But I did, I did get a call uh, um, four years later from Norman Adamy, who, if you, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know the name. Yeah. He was the CEO of Miller Brewing Company brought in by SAB. And he was back in South Africa running the South African business for SAB Miller. He said, uh, interested in joining the team over here. And my wife and I have always said, like, if the timing was right and the opportunity was right, we would take an overseas opportunity. So, um, I did say we would like to visit, uh, before I commit. So my wife and I visited, uh, for a week or so. Um, and then over the course of the next six months, we sort of worked out a deal. And in um, August of 2011, my wife, myself, and three kids—two fifth graders and a second grader at the time—landed in Johannesburg. Yeah. Uh, I worked as the general manager in South Africa for Sab Miller's uh, premium or global brands business, which was their small but highly opportune uh, with high opportunity, um, you know, premium brands. So. That's, believe it or not, uh, MGD uh, is the biggest, and then Peroni and Pilsner-Urkel and Grolsch. And so I uh, worked on that those businesses. Um, a few folks I worked with are actually over here now with, with, uh, with Molson Coors. Um, but what an amazing experience to sort of learn a whole new culture and a whole new sort of route to market and a whole new way of doing business. But leveraging what I knew well, which was the consumer side and Brand building and being strategic and smart and focused and all those things that I had learned along the way and applying them in a new place that was as vibrant and as exciting as South Africa was was awesome and the kids loved it. I mean, they lived a pretty good life over there. Uh, the country's amazing. The people are amazing. Um, it's just it's got a big piece of in my heart now forever. Um, from there, I, I, I uh, wanted to get back to North America. So SAB Miller appointed me as the president of SAB Miller Canada, which we were basically a startup operation. We had just ended our arrangement in Canada with uh, Molson, and we were taking over the ownership of our brands in Canada, the Miller brands, uh, on our own. And so we built out an entire team, and we spent I tell people we spent one year putting it all together. And then in September of 2015, the acquisition of SAB Miller by ABI was brought up. So we spent the, it, that took a year, by the way, it was announced in September of 2015. It was closed in October of 16. So I spent that whole year managing a business to, to the uh, to the end. I, I basically left Canada turning the lights off on our office um, and shutting it down. But what an amazing experience to both help build a company and then to be arm in arm with such amazing people on the team as we fought through, every piece of adversity you can imagine being involved in an acquisition uh to the point where our best quarter in canada was actually our final quarter ending mm-hmm. september of 2016 we, we kicked ass and so we were very proud of our work that we did there but i ended up back in the states after that and uh became connected with scott whitley and um we we, we met uh over a beer in chicago in a december night and uh Shortly thereafter, he asked me to step in as the interim president of St. Archer, and then after that three-month stint where I just helped manage through a transition of leadership there, uh, I then took the job as VP of Sales and Marketing for Kent and Blake. And at the time, it would it had really honed in on um, – when I took over, it was craft and imports, so we had Peroni and Pilsner-Herkel and Grolsch plus our craft brands. And then with our our restructuring, most recent restructuring where we created the Emerging Growth Division – Tenth and Blake folded into emerging growth, and now we're solely focused on our craft beers. That was a bit of a long answer, but I think uh, it tells the story of how I've gotten to where I am today.
0: And When you were working as the interim president at uh, St. Archer, what was that experience like? Because it, it goes from you know, working for large international corporations, running massive operations, to a, a much smaller, much more focused, and a, and a craft-based operation.
1: Yeah, and I'd been out of the states then for mm-hmm. uh, six years, but I kept I kept abreast of all the do- happenings in the U.S., knowing that someday I'd be back. But um, what served me well was the fact that, sort of, in my career, even in CPG, when I was with Nestle or SC Johnson, I was always working on the the brands that weren't the ones in the limelight, the ones that weren't getting all the time and attention and even in Canada, I was working on a, a, the, the smallest business unit in SAB. And so we, we were small. We were nimble. We learned how to make decisions quickly, and we moved. Um, and so that's sort of always been in my DNA, sort of working entrepreneurially and with pace within a larger organization. And so St. Archer was pretty much the same. It was a small company, part of something much bigger, and I'm pretty good at finding those the connection points that help make the small company succeed without uh, – without things being overwhelming and so that was really a great landing spot for me and it was really temporary I was not, I was not staying out in San Diego to, to take over the, the top spot and part of my job was to actually find who would take over um, and I was there from like March through June of 2017 but it was it was a great way to get back to, to see what was happening in craft to sort of jump in with both feet but also to to help guide a small business in the in the in the, with the with the big
0: and as with many multinational corporations, especially after mergers and acquisitions, uh, your company has experienced its you know share of changes and kind of division restructures over the years. And where I think you know we've landed at this point uh, is that you are the vice president and head of Tenth and Blake, which is a division with, if I have this correct, within emerging growth at Miller Coors or Molson Coors. Sorry, again with the changes over the years. What is the emerging growth yeah. division's focus?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so at the end of 2019 and beginning of 2020 is when we launched our revitalization plan. And obviously what made a lot of news was the fact that we were changing our name to Mm -hmm. the Molson Coors beverage company. And so emerging growth, which is led by Pete Marino, my boss, he, his, uh, mandate was to lead. And the emerging growth mandate is to lead the transformation of Molson Coors, um, our portfolio to become a true beverage company. Now, there's two things within that. One is the continued growth of above premium offerings. Um, And then the second is expanding beyond beer. But beer is still a very, very large part of emerging. And it's areas of the beer business that we think have a lot of upside or um, that are still really solid beer businesses, but are still, uh, you know, not necessarily as emerging as some of the other things we're doing, but definitely growth. An opportunity, and and uh, you know at, at at the premium end of the business, and that's as Pete calls it, he says it's core plus more. And mm-hmm. so emerging core would be the beer elements of emerging growth. To that uh, contributes Tenth and Blake, uh, our Latin American business, um, which is basically an import and license, uh, an export and licensing arrangement across multiple countries in Latin America, and then we also have our uh, our. Um, the sole distributor that we're, uh, owners of in, in Colorado, in, in Denver, the, this, um, uh, C- CDC. So that's the core part of emerging growth. And then the more is the non-alc, which has been off to a great start, which mm-hmm. is, you know, part of that is our partnership with LA Libations. Uh, we're obviously working with La Cologne, Zen Water. Um, obviously the biggest one and the one that maybe had the most attention is ZOA. And then we have a wine and spirits division, which, um, Currently offers uh, Superbird, which is a super premium uh, tequila-based ready-to-drink. That's fantastic, by the way. Um, And then, um, as you know, we, through the leadership of David Coors, we just launched uh, Five Barrel, which is a a full bottle, full-strength bottle whiskey, which is fantastic as well. So, we, it's it's really um, the goal for emerging growth is to become a billion dollars. division of our company and by 2023 and 10th and Blake CDC and Latem make up the majority of that revenue right now. But the growth, like the high growth and the exciting part as well is the stuff we're doing beyond beer and we're, you know, we don't really comment exactly on how things are going. But I would say uh, and Pete would say that we're a little bit ahead of schedule in that $1 billion goal. So
0: when we look at, at categories like non alcoholic beverages, I know that there's been a lot of a lot of you know, energy and excitement about you know this this category, and certainly for myself, I'm I'm one who loves the opportunity to broaden the reach of beer to audiences that you know it may be somebody who you know doesn't drink or doesn't drink on a regular basis, or even someone as myself who likes the flavor but doesn't necessarily need you know the calories or the alcohol at any given moment. Um, where do you? you know, but we've seen non alcoholic You know rise a little bit and it's always been on that that edge that people have always been talking about it as is emerging for for quite some time though there seems to be more speed now do you think it is you know poised for a breakout or do you think it's always just going to maintain kind of this small you know if if noisy role in the overall trade
1: that's uh that's something we we talk about and i i'll just share my opinion um my, my experience with non elk actually, believe it or not, goes back to when I was with Crown Imports. We had St. Pauli Girl non elk, mm-hmm. which was actually actually pretty darn good. Um, and, and then it was always managed as like, it's definitely an offering. It was never a priority. Um, but there's definitely a group of consumers where that resonates quite well. I think it has come a long way in the last decade. Um, and I do think there'll be people who, and maybe with technology and more, you know, brewing principles that are making the non-alcs the, the non-alc beers even better i think there will be some winners in it but i i still think like you said it's it's been emerging forever and it yeah. it might stay that way from a pure volume perspective as it relates to the total category it'll grow i don't know how big it will ever get but it will there'll be winners and there'll be probably some who try and and, and don't and aren't as successful. But, you know, having an offering like that at, at tap rooms and stuff within the world of craft, it does make sense. I just I just don't know how big commercially in the beer market it's ever going to get, to be
0: honest. And there are certainly players who are who are banking that it is going to get bigger. You've got folks like Athletic, you know, doing. Yeah, doing a lot of advertising, building breweries on both coasts. Um, you know, Obviously, in the past, uh, you know, Molson Coors has been somebody who has partnered with other brands you know, would it be something, and I'm sure the answer is probably, yeah, we're always interested in having these kind of conversations, but looking at a brand like Athletic, for instance, which has kind of made its name, making these fuller flavored, uh, beers and also targeting, targeting at a very you know strong lifestyle kind of community. Is that a, is that the sort of brand that, uh, you know, within, you know, emerging growth or within, um, 10th and Blake that, that your company would have some interest in?
1: Yeah, i don't i mean i'm not going to comment on like specifics I, uh, uh when it comes to like brands we'd be interested in but i will say um that a brand like athletic I, I i kind of admire their like commitment and their and their um drive to to really transform their brand into a national powerhouse and um and i think they're they're taking a really smart approach i mean i think you know the one caution is as everyone a lot of people have learned in this craft space is just you got to manage your growth you got to manage your expansion you got to be smart about it because mm. you can't just uh show up with a with the brand and, and hope for the best you have to actually really get behind it but i think their approach has been solid and they stand apart i think they're and, and then, then they're committed to it fully so um you know any anytime there's opportunities in the market and we're thinking about uh partnering or whatever i mean we those are the kind of things we consider i wouldn't There has been no conversations about that specifically, obviously, but uh, hats off to them for for Mm. going all in. I mean, I think if anyone's going to do it, they have as good a chance as anybody.
0: Tenth and Blake turned, I I think, 11 years old this year, um, which makes me feel a little old. I've remembered from the early days. but uh, Yeah,
1: it was pretty cool. Last year, uh, if you remember this time last year, like September, we were still in relative shutdown, so mm -hmm. we had a massive uh, Zoom call. (laughs) for the 10 year anniversary with anyone who's still at our company that's in 10th and Blake, including a lot of other people who've left and we brought in Cardello was on there and Whitney and anyone who's sort of had a leadership spot. And that was a, that was an awesome like couple of hours of just having beers and talking old stories and stuff. But yeah, this year we're 11.
0: And I mean, it's, it's fantastic. And hats out, hats off to the company because, you know, you know, over the years, you know, you know, Coors, especially in the beginning, had sort of differentiated itself in my, you know, personal opinion, uh, having covered this industry for a long time, in terms of the beers that it was releasing to market in the, you know, craft or more full flavored category were were solid beers. These were not beers that were meant to be gimmicks or meant to, you know, you know, fight off or, or compete directly with other brands necessarily. And I think, you know, the quintessential one you know, is Blue Moon. And, you know, can you yeah. tell me, talk a little bit about the evolution of, of Tenth and Blake? I know you've not you yeah. know, been there through the entirety of the uh, the journey, but, you know, you, from the days of Blue Moon through, you know, you know, Tenth and Blake going in a variety of different directions, having, you know, lineys in, lineys out, lineys in. Uh, just talk to me about kind of the journey that Tenth and Blake has had.
1: Absolutely. So I was not around for the uh, first early years of it, uh, but I've known Tom Cardella for a long time, and he and I spoke during this time. It was right, actually, as I was getting to South Africa that this was happening. So, so Tenth and Blake's always been about creating a division within the company that is really good at nurturing and building uh, brands that have, in the above premium beer space, that have just tons of upside, but probably need a slightly different approach compared to what we're really good at, uh, which is the you know, big beer stuff. And, mm-hmm. and now obviously we've spread our wings quite a bit, but that's how it, that's the, that was the mandate in the, in the, in the reason for 10th and Blake. And so because that reason still exists, so does 10th and Blake. Now the portfolio has more. So when it started uh, 11 years ago, the primary focus brands were Blue Moon and Line and Kugel's, particularly Shand- on the Shandy front. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, as you look through the years, those brands, saw some great success during the course of it's their 10th and Blake tenure. And they got bigger and bigger and bigger and more scale and more scale. And they got to the point a few years back where it was like, these are big, steady, strong brands that can withstand the might of an entire organization pushing hard on them. Um, and so at that stage, and it was right before I arrived, uh, blue moon and lineys left the left 10th and Blake, um, as we say, turned over to the mothership, mm-hmm. uh, run through the marketing organization, with and then they became huge priorities for the entire company because both were, were just killing it still. Um, then it was on that same time we started to acquire regional craft breweries. Um, first with the partnership with Terrapin, and you know then Saint Archer and Hot Valley and Revolver, and, um, and so that was happening at the same time. So the repurposed portfolio for Tenth and Blake at that time became are regional craft brands and imports, so Peroni and Pilsner Urkel and Gross, but Peroni being the main focus. Um, Peroni, this is all pre-pandemic now, so uh, as we headed into 2020, the thought was, to be honest, and Kugels was softening again and mm-hmm. it wasn't as interesting as, as much, and Shandy was really on a big downturn. And the thought was, let's get it back into 10th and Blake and give it some of that additional tender loving care and see if we can't get it back on track. Blue Moon, obviously steady as a rock and a massive brand, stayed in the marketing organization. And because of the importance of Peroni um, and it not being craft, and the, the it, it also left Tenth and Blake and went over to the um, main marketing organization. And now there's a person who manages Peroni and the Blue Moon and the above premium beer segment. And now Tenth and Blake is uh, clearly focused now as the craft beer division of Molson Coors, but if you go back to what I said early on, the principle still stands. It's our division where we nurture and grow high opportunity, uh, high margin brands, um, and, and 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 yeah. So it's been working, and that, uh, you're right. Like to sit here 11 years after Tenth and Blake started and still have this division, it's pretty rare actually. When you look across any segment, any industry, and even in beer, the, to have a sort of a sub the division of a large company still be around after 11 years it speaks volumes
0: yeah i agree i mean i've obviously like i said i've covered this trade for a while and you know just with anheuser busch alone you know it has come into you know its craft divisions have come into multiple iterations over that time and it's sometimes been a little bit hard to follow and certainly while brands have come in and out of tenth and blake it is kind of been that that steady rock you know through that time um, and i think you know blue moon setting that foundation was was key uh, and talking about Lineys, you know Lineys is always, always is a, one of those legacy brands that actually has a you know strong place in my heart. I grew up in Chicago, went to went to yep. you know college and law school in the Midwest. Um, you know, spent time up in Chippewa Falls, uh, been to the brewery. But it seems like you know that's one of those ones that I remember buying you know a case of returnables you know in law school for very, uh-huh. you know in the old in the old cardboard box for maybe nine bucks. Um, but it's it seems like it's I, you, I know,
1: don't, you don't want to age yourself, but
0: <laughs> you kind of are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, and I'm fine with it because yeah. you we—I know, might have been a yeah. little, little on the younger side when I was drinking that, but uh, I was, you yeah. know, always a big fan of Liney's Red, and that was kind of one of the beers that got me into craft beer. But Liney's, in recent years, yep. it's one of those ones I follow, you know, somewhat closely. It just—it seems like it's had a bit of an identity crisis. You know, it's this legacy, old little school yep. family brewery, one that is, you know, well steeped in lager, and it, it wouldn't make sense to be necessarily maybe be doing hazy's hazy ipas or things out of there but then it you know it it certainly had a great deal of success you know with the with the shandy family uh you know what is the status of the the line and kugel's brand i know it's been moved back within 10th and blake but what's the sort of status and what's the identity there and the future of the brand
1: yeah i mean first of all how awesome is chippewa falls
0: that's yeah, great it's fan um, i mean that's god's country.
1: I've been all over the, I could. I, I guess I could say all over the world at br- different breweries, but the setting and the, and the, and just what happens there, it's just, it's a little magical and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a great place. I'm, I'm glad you've been there. Um, Limey's, when it came back to 10th and Blake became our top priority. It, that, that's part of the point, right? Like within the fold of Molson Core's marketing organization, which has tons of amazing, which we have tons of amazing brands and opportunities, um. You know, it, it becomes slightly less of a priority in a large uh, group like that. But when you bring it to 10th and Blake, it shot to the top. Number one, it's our biggest brand. Um, and so there's a few things. Um, the headline is we wanted to take the opportunity to re-establish Line and Kugels as a powerhouse craft brewery from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and a little bit of that had been lost over time just because shandy became so big and overwhelming that it became like the shandy brand so mm-hmm. we really wanted to sort of get back to some of our roots but also stay relevant in the, today's market so shandy is and will always be the lead dog um and um after i'm happy to say after several years of double-digit declines sometimes into the 20 percent range um shandy grew this year summer shandy had a fantastic summer um it's back to growth um uh which is pretty remarkable because in 2020 with the shift to off-premise purchasing and large packs sort of summer shandy liney summer shandy fit into the brand people know and trust and they'll they'll be confident to grab it we had a really good off-premise business in 2020. um we continued that in 2021 but then on-premise started coming back which was just icing on the cake it's a really great draft brand it's really great on-premise it fits perfectly in the summer clearly it's the largest summer seasonal. It's pretty much the largest seasonal of any kind uh, in the beer business. And so it is our bread and butter, and we, it's got a, a new life uh, is breathed into it. We even left opportunity on the table. We we only got back to about 70% of our distribution in the on-premise as it came back versus 2019. And so heading into 2022, the, the plan is to close the rest of that gap, so we should be having a better year. Um, meanwhile, we are doing a lot of things to keep the brand – uh interesting to the new to new consumers it's been around for 154 years now um, in fact my first month back in the u.s beer business i was up in chippewa falls with jake and dick and the family and we were celebrating the 150th and now we're here we are at 154 um so how do you keep a 154 year old brand true and authentic to itself but also um competitive in a, in a craft space and understanding the brand's role i think you hit on it where line and cools is not going to be your you know your uh, craft lovers' dream beer. It's not going right. to be for hardcore IPA drinkers or hardcore craft uh, aficionados, if you will. Um, but it is a great brand to ex you know to get new and uh, new consumers into the franchise with with some craft offerings. Knowing our place, it's not you know they're accessionable, they're approachable, they're drinkable. They're all those things that. Um, sort of fit in that nice space of sort of the entry level into craft and so we're doing a lot of things particularly in the great lakes region and and obviously in wisconsin um to revitalize that we've got you said uh maybe we don't have a uh a hazy but we do we uh this last year we this year we launched a lemon haze ipa again we have a lot of equity in the lemon space with Chinese uh so you take the lemon idea and you put it with the hottest trend in craft which is hazy and you create a very, very drinkable, sort of mid-level IBU, not too hoppy, uh, sessionable, hazy, and it, it, it actually did very well as we headed into the summer this year. And it'll be back next year for year two. We have a, um, we're taking the same approach in the sour space, and we're coming out with Juicy Peach, which is a sour, sour beer, which is fantastic. Again, really peachy, really beer-like, and a little tart and a little sour, not nothing overwhelming. So. Um, you take the innovation that we're doing. Uh, we have toasted Bach out there right now. We have chocolate dunkle lager that's in the market for ho- for the holiday season. Um, so really some really exciting innovation. And then the coolest part is we were able to uh, get approval for a seven barrel pilot system that's going into the Liney Lodge and it's almost done as we speak. Yeah, I saw some, of, so the, the saw some of the liney,
0: liney family tweets about that. They were pretty excited.
1: Yeah, and I don't know who did it, but someone coined the phrase. It's the tiny liney. So <laughs> we have our tiny liney brewery. We'll probably commission it in early December. That's going to unleash all kinds of innovation. Again, in the wheelhouse of lineys, and we know our consumers. Um, but but they're excited at the brewery because now they have a a little bit of a playground and a little bit of a sandbox to play in. That's going to really unleash innovations. And some of those beers will be sold only at the lodge, and others will be put in kegs and sent to. Wisconsin and Minnesota, and we'll see. And I'm sure, I'm I'm certain our next big beer brand that's in package, that's out in the market will be coming from that, that new pilot system. So those are the kinds of things we're done, but make no mistake that Liney's is our top priority. And it's, as you said, it's an amazing brand. We just have to tap into what it's all about a little bit better.
0: That is always great to hear As I said, it always holds a place in my heart and I look forward to seeing what happens with Liney's in the future cannot recommend arrived enough. Killer customer support, affordable, ability to start tabs without holding cards, keeps track of ounces sold for state reporting, two different ways to report tips, the list goes on. It's amazing, says Tracy Bardigan of Firemaker Brewing in Atlanta you noted earlier that you had ran St. Archer for a few months in 2017. Uh, and obviously are very familiar with it through your work at 10th and Blake. Um, you know, I think one of the big stories about St. Archer and they've, you know, had a great deal of success with a variety of different products, but one of the, you know, sometimes, you know, things don't always work out. And one of the ones that didn't work out was a kind of a big play with regards to St. Archer gold. And obviously Molson Coors had, had bet big on that brand when it was a 95, you know, calorie light beer, very tasty beer. Uh, so what was the, yeah. you know, what's sort of the post-mortem on, on, on St. Archer gold and what happened there?
1: Yeah, you're, uh, you're hitting on a, a, a one that still pains me. Um, I was heavily, heavily involved in the sort of uh, the origination of that that opportunity and seeing it through a test and then making the decision to, to take the learnings from the test and turning it into a national launch, like as you said, with a really big bet behind it. So what, what was done really well was the beer. So I, no matter where we tested it, who we tested it with, who we put it up against quite quite frankly it was really coming out as like the best light beer out there to be honest and we make some amazing ones and that's part of why it was so good is because I'm biased clearly but Molson Coors makes the best light beer in the world so um we take some of those learnings and give it to the you take the St. Archer team and you, you you connect them with some of the Molson Coors brewers and that's actually what came out of it um so the beer was fantastic I thought the packaging the whole positioning of the brand with aiming to be more of a lifestyle taking, we, we, we were banking on this Southern Cal kind of aspirational lifestyle that St. Archer sort of lives and breathes and having that resonate across the country. And it made perfect sense for us that a brand like that with an authentic and true backstory that actually naturally lives in the sort of lifestyle space could be one that would be uh, a good challenger over time to the above premium lights of the world, which by the way, is basically Michelob Ultra. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, as we, as a company, Molson course says, how do we do something to to uh, combat ultra And on the craft side, we're like, how do? What do we have in our portfolio that we could scale up? That's how that came about. So we bet really big in 2020. We came out of the gate with a regional buy on the Super Bowl. We got lots of beer on the floor. Um, we knew that we were going to have to hang on for dear life between the Super Bowl and like chain resets, which were to happen in March and April of 2020. Um, and then I'm not sure if you've heard, but there was a little disruption Small in one. March of 2020. Yeah. So <laughs> uh, the, the pandemic hit. And so if you were to think about the core elements of our launch plan, number one was advertising and media, which if you recall March 2020, no one knew what was happening. Right. And so a lot of media plans and budgets kind of got shelved until we could sort out what was going on. So that was one impact. The second element of our plan was really fantastic chain support and distribution and getting in cold boxes. Well, that, those chain resets never happened. Yeah. And if they did happen, they happened June, July, August, well into the summer just because of disruption and and no one in a grocery store in early spring, uh, late spring, 2020 was worried about resets. They were worried about staying in business and protecting their people. So, um, that hurt us. We never got shelved properly, you know, we never executed our retail plan, which is, you know a bit of a problem and then the last element of our launch was massive amount massive amounts of sampling at every venue fair festival that molson Coors is associated with well those were all gone too right so we you know i can't sit here today and guarantee that this thing would have been a, a runaway success i can pretty confidently say that if we were able to execute our plan st archer gold would still be in the market now i don't how big would it be obviously that's easy to make up a number but i think uh i think executing a new brand across the country without being able to do those things i just described is impossible and so it never got off the ground and then we made the the bold decision to just to just stop it because it wasn't it's hard to come back from a start like that even if there's really good excuses and reasons
0: one of the other So
1: that was painful but you know we were sort of dealt a rough a rough uh, set of circumstances.
0: You certainly were. that. I mean, the headwinds alone. I'm, you
1: know, it, it, I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, it, another brand that launched around the same time was uh, Blue Moon Light Sky. Mm-hmm. But it had the benefit of the halo of Blue Moon, which was massive. Right. So when you're coming out with St. Archer Gold into um, all parts of the country, there's no built-in awareness at all. It's ground zero. So totally different situation. And it, at the time, it kind of proved like, having a brand behind an innovation in a, especially in a challenging time is really important.
0: Most one of the other brands that I think falls within within your purview is uh, True Colors Brewery out of North Carolina, which is a yeah. you know recent acquisition for a minority stake in, in the brewery and it you know for those who don't know True Colors has a mission to reduce gang violence by engaging with and hiring you know active gang members and the initiative certainly has you know, received its fair share of press since it was announced. Uh, this, you know, it's founded in part by George Taylor, who you know, helped guide Untapped to success and the eventual exit there uh, to private equity. You, can you tell me a little bit about True Colors Brewery and how Molson Coors came to be involved?
1: Oh yes, I love True Colors Brewery. Um, it was uh, August or so of 2020 when um, Pete Marino sent me a note, like, hey, uh, check out this True Colors thing. Uh, George Taylor is trying to reach someone, and you should give him a call. So I did. And then over the course of a couple months, George and I just talked more and more about his mission. I did what everyone does, by the way, which is like, oh, so, wow, former gang members running a business. That's cool. He's like, no, 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 no. No, Nothing former about them. Part of the requirement is that they're in a gang while they're working because the only way to change – And to deliver their mission of reducing gun violence and gang-related violence is to have people who are influential inside the gangs start to spread the word that there's other options and there's opportunities out there. And so that's at the core of what they do. So once I got my head around that, it was like we started talking about potential partnerships and what that would look like and investment. And I just started learning more about him and his business and his team. Um, And i was I made the case internally that this is the this is um, easily chalked up as a sort of community and corporate affairs and dei initiative and mm-hmm. you kind of check the box but it's way more than that. it's actually a real business opportunity that has a mission that's like a mission I've never heard before it's not we're not doing this because we're you know because we're a charity. we're doing this because one it's a business opportunity and one a and tied with one it's uh it's an amazing um way to to take a new approach to it's sort of like putting your money where your mouth is on any kind of uh program or plan that's going to change things and this is um great and actually one one thing that gives me a lot of confidence that they're going to be successful and that it actually can change things is the fact that it makes a lot of people uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and so that's going on even to this day So it's like you're doing what with who and isn't that dangerous? And there's been negative press about things that have happened and all that, but it it, more and more that that happens and more and more cements that this is actually a good idea because it's easy to be safe and easy to do, to take the easy route and get a lot of accolades. But when you're going to do what George and his team are doing, I mean, that's a commitment beyond, uh, beyond compare. So um, as we progressed in our conversations, uh, worked with our internal leadership team and we decided to make a, Uh, yeah, a minority equity investment. Um, And as part of that, we're helping them, um, you know, the goal is to have them go through the Molson Course Distributor Network. I consult with George on any kind of number of issues that come up. Um, I'm on their board of directors, for example. But we, it's really, um, it's really a fantastic business that he's starting. And it's really, really um, compelling and different. And I, I urge anyone to just Google True Colors Brewing, and you'll see all of the coverage they've gotten and all of the, the good, the bad, and the ugly that come with it, but it's all out there, and it's uh, I'm I'm really help, happy with where that where it's coming. They just launched their beer in September, and they're selling uh, True Light uh, throughout North Carolina as we speak.
0: This, I mean, in my experience, I'm trying to think of another circumstance in which uh, you know a major corporation, a major corporation in the beer space you know, went in and invested in a brewery before they'd even produced a single beer. Can you think of an, is there another example? I'm just trying to wrap my mind around uh, the the circumstances because it just seems like it's the, almost the polar opposite of how this, how this usually works.
1: You're the first person who's ever even mentioned that. And actually now you're making me think, and I, I can't think of one. That's such a good point. I don't, and it was because uh the belief we had in George the belief we had in the team that we met that worked with George the how compelling his mission was and how how it could actually lead to real change um and, and his and his hopes and aspirations of making that a national brand someday like th- that's what we bought into mm-hmm. and it's similar with most acquisitions i mean the first thing is the people um and the brand and kind of what what it stands for and all that so those things seemed pretty clear to us um, but yeah, it, it is quite different to invest in a brewing company that hasn't actually brewed yet, to be honest.
0: And at this point Thank I know th- for that I know they just released the uh their, their first beer. Um but is it are they and this is just my lack of knowledge about them, are they do they have their own brewing space? Are they doing that, you know, through oh, yeah. Miller okay, so the, the beer they're brewing is produced uh, by their employees. They have
1: they a facility um in, in Wilmington, North Carolina mm. that they have spent the last couple of years preparing um there was also delays because you know everything's delayed right yeah, now delays and yeah. getting them their brewing equipment delays and their startup so they're they they wanted to be out much sooner in 2021 but they they just did launch because they finally got up and running but yeah they have a brewing facility that's actually capable of getting up toward 50,000 barrels they have a small little uh tasting room in there because this is a i don't know i, I don't i don't want to people with too many details, but their approach to how they treat their people is second to none. So they, they uh, bring in gang members. They go through a, a super intense, no nonsense, 90 day onboarding process where if someone is late, like one day or doesn't show up, they're gone. Um, it's like a, a bit of a boot camp. Uh, at the end of the 90 days, literally all of them go up in an airplane and jump out tandem. And it's sort of like jumping into their new world. It's sort of uh sort of um, symbolic of, taking on challenges and, and taking a leap. Um, they have a studio because music's going to be a big part of what they do. They have a workout facility. They uh, train and educate their employees on their health and their finances and how to, you know, budget and do things in their own personal life. And then obviously give them skills and training in whatever functional area of the brewery that they're going to work in. So they have, people who do brewing and selling and marketing and finance and accounting, all the different things, there's gang members actively involved, if not leading those areas. And and I've I've met some of these guys and, um, sitting down at a table with young 23, 24 year old gang members and just listening to them. It actually was, I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but it was life changing for me in terms of my perspective on things. And one of the quotes but I'll never forget that one of the guys said was you should never judge the decisions that we make until you understand the opportunities that we've been given and to me that that will live with me forever and it's like giving gang members an opportunity to see that there's a path that's not related to being in a gang or not related to violence that's actually uh could be life-changing for them and their families it's it's really remarkable to see and I, I love these guys It's 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 awesome
0: in the past year, the beer industry has experienced, you know, along the lines of what you're talking about, uh, growing reckoning in several areas, including, you know, racism and sexism. We've certainly seen that, you know, not just with the death of George Floyd, but you know, the craft beer industry in particular has had, uh, you know, a, a substantial issue over the years with be, you know, skewing heavily white, heavily male, uh, and we've you know, heard, you know, sort of story after story of of just bad behavior. Uh, throughout this particular industry. You know, I, I imagine you, you've you seen that, you've tracked it. What is your response to what you've seen and heard in the last year or two?
1: First of all, the stories are really disappointing and saddening and even infuriating. Um, and we have a no, we've always had a no, to, zero tolerance policy against any kind of discriminatory or um, sexual harassment, any of those things that are just there's no place for it in our organization, um, and so within Tenth and Blake, being on the front line of multiple craft breweries, I'm really proud of our track record, to be honest. And we, um, you know, we we value diversity. We have a long way to go, like everyone else does. Um, if you if you think of the female uh, employees that we have, we have um, a, a couple of brewers in Terrapin, a couple of our lead people in the brewery, uh, females. We have our vice president of finance at terrapin is a, is a woman uh megan Mares runs our revolver um brewery uh, pilot brewery at, at texas live in arlington that's her she's in charge of all R and and innovation she's fantastic uh our head of sales jillian at saint archer is a woman a lot of our heads of marketing are women so we you know we, we're trying we constantly strive to create a, a diverse and inclusive environment. And it's part of all of Molson Core's steps in that area. Um, we've taken a tremendous strides, um, as an, as an organization. Um, I, I do think that true color spits into this dialogue clearly. Mm. Um, and then one thing I'm really proud of, and I, I think you probably hear this from several people you interview and I, I, I listened to one, um, and this was brought up, but we, I'm really proud of, um, uh, the fact that we launched the Brewing Education Scholarship Temple mm-hmm. Ed, the Blake Brewing Education Scholarship. And right now we have partnerships between Terrapin and East Tennessee State, between AC Golden and Colorado State. We have uh, Hot Valley with Oregon State, Lining Kugels with the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and uh, finally uh, Revolver partnering with Texas A&M, where we have uh, every year now we're going to be giving out a scholarship to an underrepresented uh, from a student, from an unrepresented body, whether they be a person of color or a female, LGBTQ, whatever, um, whatever those, uh, you know, those, those groups of folks who have been sort of underserved in the craft beer space, we're really trying to set out and create long-term change. And, um, I'm glad that other people are doing it. Um, we started ours last year. We're up to five schools now, as I said. Um, and when you take that five you're actually in a, in a few years we'll have you know five schools with four people at a time going through that so those folks will get internships they'll have an opportunity hopefully for employment at our company or somewhere in the craft business so um that to me is a great long-term play but we we, we, we talk about it regularly and we're I'm, I'm pretty proud of our record and uh there's just no no place for any of that kind of behavior in, in any business um and, and you know we definitely. We definitely aren't really focused on
0: it. In terms of uh, concluding here, I you know, the questions I sort of have remaining are ones that are, are, are somewhat personal to me in the sense of I, I need to ask you some questions about Pilsner, if that's okay with you.
1: <laughs> Pilsner so, or Kel?
0: Yeah, I've got, well, not just Pilsner or Kel, but I also want to talk a little bit about Barman pills as well. Um, oh, something, yes. something that, you know, maybe dates myself as well, but just, I, I would be remiss if I, if I, if I missed the opportunity to ask, you know, how Pilsner urkel is doing and what you see as sort of the future of, of that particular brand that has a place very close to my heart, uh, here in the States.
1: So full disclosure, when people ask me my favorite beer or when I go to a pub on the 16th floor of our building in Chicago, I drink Pilsner urkel uh, it's so good. And it's so good. a classic beer. Um, it is, you know, it's one of those brands. Geez, we talked about this uh, sort of around the uh, non-alc space, but it's the it seems to be that brand that's like always got potential, but it's been hard to realize. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of, I'd, I'd say, where it stands today. People who know Pilsner Urquell Kell love it. There's bars who get behind it, and they're obviously selling enough to keep it really fresh and keep it moving. Those bars are, are great, and it's worth seeking them out. It is just not – it's not uh, exploded into, like, a massive powerhouse import. But where it plays, it plays very well. So I, I, I would love to have been the one to solve, like, how do you make Pilsner of <laughs> achieve its full potential? But it's still a work in progress. Um, but it's it's truly a, a remarkable beer. And then I think you asked about Barman Pills. Oh, yeah. I mean, the first time I had one, I was visiting – Golden. I was meeting with David Coors, and he took me over to a bar in Golden, and we um, ordered a Barman Pills. They had it on draft. They only have it in a few places, Um, and while we waited for our Barman Pills, because it takes several minutes to pour properly, uh, we had a Coors banquet, and so that was one of the best uh, beer moments of my career, Uh, so Barman Pills is amazing and fantastic, and for the first time, uh, last year in a in a variety pack, um, we put out Barman Pills in cans, uh, uh, and we're doing it again this year. It's actually out in market in Colorado right now in another variety pack, mixed in with uh, a couple of Colorado native products. And so what we're going to do long term, whether we try to expand it or, or continue down, like just creating a package just for itself, I mean, that's all stuff that we talk about all the time. But that's another brand, and, and anyone who's been through Golden and has experienced Barman Pills, I mean, they talked about it for a while, so...
0: Love that brand! I know people for many years. Uh, you know, Coors was that that brand that they would you know try to bootleg back to the back to the states. But now that I know that it's out, you know, Barman Pills is out there in uh, Colorado in the wild. I'm gonna have to find somebody to bootleg some of that for me because that is a that is a absolutely beautiful beer.
1: Send me your address, maybe I'll see what we can do.
0: No, there we go. Paul, I want to thank you so much yeah, for you someone. <laughs> That's great. You know somebody there. Because uh, you know, these are fantastic brands. I'm always excited to see what you know Tenth and Blake is up to and, and what's what the future holds. It looks like a lot of exciting things there. But Paul, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us today.
1: It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having
0: me. This has been Andy Crouch, and thanks for listening to the Beer Edge Podcast. My partner John Hall and I work hard to produce interesting podcasts and other content for you, our dear listeners. And this is where I ask you to give us a little hand. We've got some cool merch for sale at BeerEdge.com. Buy a shirt or a mug and help support independent journalism. And if you're itching for more beer content, check out John's podcast, Drink Beer, Think Beer, with new episodes every Wednesday. It's a good listen on your commute or if you just need to take a break. We're on the socials at The Beer Edge. And if you want to be on the show, or if you want to sponsor the show, or if you know the perfect guest, Please drop me a line. My email is andy at beeredge.com and my DMs are open everywhere at Beerscribe. Go to Arrive.com to set up a free, customized demo with an Arrive consultant and see how a point of sale can make all the difference in your guest experience, staff efficiency, and bottom line. Chances are a switch to Arrived will save you time, money, and a whole lot of headaches. Arrive.com That's Arrived with a Y, -Y A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com. Arrived is the point of service that works for you.